Well, I, I have been in a series uh, called Dancing with David, talking about the life of David. And, and dance in the series, I'm using that to reflect uh, the ups and downs of life, the dance we call life. This week, we come to the story of David and Bathsheba. And so I've entitled this sermon, Dirty Dancing. Uh, that's the one we're on this week. And um, it's, it's a story of David and his fall. Now, most of us don't realize that David was about 50 years old at this time. He wasn't a young man when he committed this sin with Bathsheba. He'd probably been a faithful leader for over 20 years um, in Israel. He distinguished himself as a man of God. So this is a man of God, a faithful shepherd. He was a psalmist who'd given some of the best and greatest songs his country had ever known. The psalms we still read today, the words of, as the scriptures. He was known as a great warrior and a wonderful leader of his people. So here's a guy that in the prime of his life is about to make the biggest mistake of his life. He wasn't a young rebel. He wasn't a pervert. He was a man of God. But he fell in this grave sin. And it would have devastating consequences for his family and for his nation. So I want to talk to you today about how to protect yourself from sexual sin. And here's the first thought. Keep your eyes in the right place. It was David's first mistake. 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Well, first we see that <clears throat> in a time when kings go off to war, it says. So David finds himself uh, in an idle state finds himself leisurely laying around when he should have been off uh, doing battle. And the lust of the flesh that started with the lust of the eyes, taking a look at this beautiful woman, it doesn't appear that he knew what he was going to see when he walked around in that roof. But he made a decision in just an instant, and we all have to, have to make decisions too, that when he looked at this woman, that he would look a little longer. Gaze. One brother was talking to me about the way he overcomes temptation and he was saying that he bounces his eyes. And I just thought it was a good little tip. He says if he sees something that's attractive to him or something he knows he shouldn't be looking at in that moment that he just walked into like David did in a place that he wasn't asking for it, he never looks for more than two seconds and he bounces his eyes and he moves away. And I thought, well, that's a good little tip. There was no bouncing of the eyes here with David. David lingered, he looked, and then he lusted. Those who think this could never happen to them are probably naive and the most vulnerable in this respect. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, if you think you are strong, you should be careful not to fall. And here's what I want to say to you. Better men and women of God than you have gone down to these sins. And I, every one of us, 
are vulnerable to some degree. Every one of us will face temptation. Temptation's not sin. It's giving way to temptation that is a sin. And so if David, this great man of God, can fall, we can fall, and we need to take every precaution. David should have captured that thought and moved away from the ledge, but he didn't. Job 31.1 talks about the eyes. It says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. When I used to travel and speak to teenagers years ago, I used to say, you need to make a decision right now that you will not ever be in the back seat with someone. I'd say to the young ladies, if you decide now you're not getting in the back seat, then you won't have to deal with that kind of temptation when the time comes. You won't be there. And some of these decisions, guys and ladies, have to be made up front and we need to resolve it in our heart now. We're not going to do this, this, or this. We're going to keep our eyes and our hearts in the right place. Those decisions matter. They derail temptation. And you can rule it out in advance to a great degree. I read a story this week by David McCullough. It's Harry Truman's biographer. Harry Truman was uh, the president of the United States. He was at the Potsdam Conference, and that's the one that took place with world leaders after World War II when Germany had surrendered and they were deciding just how to parse it out and, and, uh, and rule from that point forward. And Truman was tired one evening near the end of one of those arduous sessions. And he was leaving uh, for his nearby hotel. And a young army public relations officer saw Truman about to leave in his car and stuck his head in the window and asked if he could have a ride. And Truman said, get in. And the two struck up a conversation. It was overheard by Truman's driver and later reported to David McCullough, who gives this account. McCullough says, in Berlin, the black market was rampant and everything was available. Cigarettes, watches, whiskey, and prostitutes. And the officer said that if there was anything the president wanted, <clears throat> anything he needed at all, he only had to say the word, anything, you know, he said, like women. And Truman, the president, bristled and said, listen, son, I married my sweetheart. She doesn't run around on me and I don't run around on her. I want that understood don't ever mention that kind of stuff to me again. I thought that was appropriate because in this passage we have a king who knew better but lingered. Who knew he could do whatever he wanted because he had power. And now we here have a president who made a very different decision but it started with saying, I'm never going to do that. I always say when it comes to these temptations that we need willpower. It takes our will. If you don't exercise your will, God will not give you his power. You have to decide, I don't want to do this and move your feet in the right place. And when you do willpower, you exercise your will. His power shows up to enable you to go beyond, to resist things that you couldn't even do completely on your own. Our will, his power. Jesus showed that this is serious business. Look at this passage. You know, we always, especially in the media, people who don't know him, they, they talk a lot about the love of Jesus and he was loving. But did you know that God's love is just? 
Come on, don't you think that he cares about the wife who's going to be cast aside when her husband commits adultery and runs away? Are you telling me God doesn't care about her? Isn't he just? Does he not care about the husband that is abandoned by a lady who runs off with some young stallion? He cares. He's a God of grace. He's a God of truth as well. He's a God of love, but he's a God of justice. And listen to the words of Christ and know that he is completely love. This is love. It has to do with his governmental justice. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Sweet little saying from Jesus there one day. (laughs) Jesus talked about hell. He wasn't saying gouge your eye out and, you know, or we'd have a bunch of one-eyed men walking around in our society, maybe losing both eyes. What he was saying is, I want you to understand how completely serious this is, and it's much greater than suffering the loss of even your eye. I want you to understand that you must discipline yourself to pull away from these things and not do these things. Cover your eyes Keep your eyes in the right place. And I, I would just say that for, for men, let me speak to you for a moment when it comes to pornography because this is about as close as it gets to pornography in the Bible. Uh, he came upon something that he was uh, just, just on the roof but he saw a woman who was bathing and he saw she was beautiful. Well, <clears throat> that's pretty close to pornography and pornography is always wrong. It is never helpful. Your eyes are are meant to be only, uh, the only seat of affection you should have are for your spouse, your wife. And if your eyes wandering, you mess up the intimacy of of what God wants for you and your relationship with with your wife. And so you've got to make decisions that I'm not going to let my eyes be in a place that they shouldn't be. That means blocking that computer. That means you take control of what's going to be on that TV at home. You, you put the safety codes in. You, you, you make sure that, that not only your family. I like what Josh McDowell said to his daughter when she was going on a date and he gave her a little counsel. She said, you don't trust me. And Josh McDowell says, why, why should I trust you when I don't even trust myself? And listen, if David can fall, men, you can fall. We can fall. And so you take hold of things. You make sure that your eyes are in the right place. You make sure that things are blocked and covered and that you have a safe environment for not only your family, but for yourself. Second thought today, don't let yourself get close to him or her. Now, David felt this initial attraction, and men and women, I'll never forget what what a preacher said to me once, and it, it scared the bejeebers out of me. He said, Stan, never forget that somewhere there's a woman who could make you fall. And I said to the brother, are you seeing something in my life? Because I'm not, I'm not feeling especially tempted now. He said, no, I'm just telling you that that's true for every person in life. And you know how we know it's true? Because the enemy makes sure that it's true. And so we have to take every precaution. And you're going to come upon situations where you have to be honest with yourself <clears throat> that you felt an initial attraction with someone. And then what do you do with it? Let's see what David did. He looked, but then he acted in the wrong way. 
He should have not got close to her, but he let himself get close to her. And David said, or rather sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and she slept, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from uncleanness, and then he went back, she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Well, pregnancy is a problem when adultery is committed. It's one of the, the harsh realities of things that can happen, uh, along with disease and, and loss of, of intimacy with loved ones. But there, the problem here that is obvious in the word is he's going to have a hard time covering his sin because her husband's at war. How could she start to show as she's pregnant when her husband's not around? People would know that she had been in sin. So David makes a decision, first of all, to be with her and get close when he shouldn't. And I would say this, if you feel that initial attraction, you be especially careful. Don't call them. Don't have lingering conversations with them. I personally believe, although some businesses make it very difficult, if it's at all within the realm of your own ability to do, do not go out to lunch with the opposite sex for business appointments. Don't do it. Uh, and, And I would say this, men, listen to your wives. Sometimes they know that you don't have anything in your heart, but they can have discernment of somebody else who has something in their heart. And, and just be careful. I, I had uh, counsel given to me by a brother who was a pastor once, never let a secretary sew on a button for you or make a personal phone call that has to do with your family business because you keep, you keep church uh, as church business and you keep family as family with your wife. Because when you start to give away things like that, Little bonds can be made of favors and uh, attention and things can be trouble. Move away, be very careful. Don't let yourself go there where you can start to develop an intimacy of heart and mind with someone um, that's beyond your spouse. Jack Hayford, who's a great man of God and has pastored faithfully for scores of years, one of the most well-known pastors in America, told the story at one pastor's conference Um, of an attraction that he had to one of his secretaries. And he spoke it. He he was realizing that he liked seeing her. He wanted to see what she was dressed in and he was just being honest. And he said something to his staff member because he was a little bit concerned and wanted to be accountable. That staff member who was very close to him and ran the office, the next day when Jack came in, his secretary had been reassigned. And she wasn't even around. And I I don't know if you can reassign everything, but to the best of your ability, make sure that you keep an environment where you can be successful and you stay away from creating an environment when you're dishonest with yourself that would allow you to make a mistake and fall. David made things worse. He didn't do that. We talked about our eyes, but let's talk about our minds now. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we... Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. David had a thought. He was attracted to her and thought, I want to see her and talk to her and perhaps more. He should have taken that thought captive. I know people who say to me, you can't be responsible for your thoughts. But if the word says we can take a thought captive, then guess what? We can take a thought captive. How do you take a thought captive? You say, Lord Jesus, help me in this moment. I am not thinking right. 
if I give way to this temptation, something terrible could happen. And so, I'm asking for your power to help me right now. Because God, I know if I move into this, I'll be hurting you. I'll hurt my wife. I'll hurt my children. I'll hurt your church. And I'll hurt the community. Jesus, I'm moving away from this by your power because it's wrong. And I'm taking this thought captive. That works. It'll work. Romans 13, 14 says, Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Ladies, you have to be especially careful after you're married for a season. Those words of affirmation may not come like they came in the early days of marriage. I wish they would and God wants them to, but the reality is as marriage goes on and we get comfortable, we don't say those words of affirmation as much as we should men or women. Ladies, where guys might have trouble with their eyes as a primary concern, this is the area that I think is soil for the enemy in your life, and it's the thoughts. When that kind word is spoken by that worker at work, or that word of affirmation comes, or they say you look nice today, and you like it, and you want to hear more. And then you start to think and fantasize. Oh, maybe not sexually, but it might be about um, a relationship where someone would truly care about you and appreciate you for who you are. You have to take those thoughts captive. It's just the enemy trying to find a way to worm his way in, hurt and wound and destroy. Take those thoughts captive. Don't dwell on them. Say, I'm not gonna think about that. I'm not gonna think about having more conversations with him or her. Because God's law says she's not available. David didn't do that. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 lets us know that whatever temptation comes our way, God will help us if we trust in him. It says this, the only temptation that has come to you is that which everyone has. But you can trust God. It will not permit you to be tempted more than you can stand. But when you are tempted, he will also give you a way to escape so that you'll be able to stand it. When Joseph was faced with temptation like David, when Potiphar's wife came in and said, I want to sleep with you, Joseph could have yielded that that temptation just like David did in his setting. But what Joseph did is literally slip out of his coat and flee and run. And sometimes you just have to vote with your feet. You just have to turn and go and deny those feelings and that that temptation that the enemy is shooting into your heart and your brain and just get out of there. Here's the thing about temptation. When you turn your back to it and move away, the further you get away, the easier it becomes. The quicker you get out of there, the less you're going to have to deal with. And so be like Joseph instead of David and move fast and find out that the Lord will help you. Now, you wouldn't think you'd have to say this next statement, but I want to say it. Not in church and not to Christians. But I I, want to just say it simple and, and plain. Sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is always forbidden and always has negative consequences attached to it. Sex was created by God for the purpose of intimacy and marriage between a man and a woman. A a lifelong committed relationship. That's the only place that it was created for. And anything outside of that is sin. And will have consequences attached to it in this life. 
Proverbs 5, verse 3. And I'm, I'm going to read several verses. I'm not going to do the whole chapter, but, I, but, but I, I put a few here together to, so we could get the feeling. For the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as poison, as dangerous as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. And we're talking about don't get close to her or him now. And look at verse 8. Stay away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. If you'll do, you'll lose your honor and will lose to merciless people all you've achieved. Now, I I, want to just say before this, doesn't this sound like alimony and child support? Verse 10, strangers will consume your wealth and someone else will enjoy the fruit of your labor. Verse 14, I've come to the brink of utter ruin. That's what you'll say when you, when you commit adultery. And now I must face public disgrace. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving dear, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Now some may think, I didn't need that last scripture in a public setting. But I just, I just want to remind you that this is the Bible. And... Um, I wanted to read that today so you could know this, that God is not against sex. He created it. And he even used the word satisfy in there. So that means that there's some pleasure that was intended when he created it. And the church has kind of confused us through the years, not meaning to, but the message was kind of like this. It's not what they said, but it's what we got. It was something like this. Sex is a filthy, disgusting, immoral experience and save it for the one you love. (laughs) What? Well, it's not filthy, it's not disgusting, and it's not immoral if it happens God's way. Now, now, when it happens God's way with a man and a woman completely committed to one another, something takes place that's beyond what the the world knows. And I'm here to tell you that sex God's way is better than any sex that the world has to offer. Because there's this intimacy, this unity, and this love attached to it that's way deeper than the rest of the world knows. And you could only know God's truth if you follow God's plan. And so here's what I want to say to you today. Fight for it. Fight for that intimacy in marriage that God wants you to have. Don't let anything get in there to mess up the beauty of a relationship with your spouse. You say, well, I'm not married. Well, listen, What you do now will determine much of your habits in your life to come. It'll bring some pain and some heartache down the road when things have to be shared. But why don't you be right now what you want your spouse to be for you someday? Why don't you be faithful now like you want your spouse to be before they show up in your life? And then when everything is happening God's way and that intimacy is there and that trust is there, the beauty of a relationship goes way beyond sex to a partner in life. Someone that you can walk with and talk with and enjoy life in an incredible companionship that God has ordained for those who walk in his truth. Fight for it. I want to read this and it's it's heavy. Honestly, as I I went through these scriptures, I, uh, 
I, I was a little bit disappointed that I couldn't bring this around to as positive as I want, but the whole point of David and Bathsheba in the Bible is stay away from this. I mean, that's the whole, the whole reason it's left there for us. Uh, take every precaution. Look what can happen to anybody who's not careful. This is not Bible, but Chuck Swindoll wrote this in his book, The Finishing Touch. And I will tell you from over 20 years of pastoral ministry that, that I have found as we've done counseling and help people in life that, that adultery in a marriage is devastating. And I think this picks up um, the, the, the experience that I've seen and, and, and time has tested. This preacher, Chuck Swindoll, lets us know what, it really like, what it's really like. And here's what he says. The following is an incomplete list of what you have in store after your immorality is found out. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. When it's found out, and here's what Swindoll says. I'm gonna read it slow. Your mate will experience the anguish of betrayal, shame, rejection, heartache and loneliness, and no amount of repentance will soften those blows. Your mate can never again say that you're a model of fidelity. Suspicion will rob him or her of trust. Your escapades will introduce to your life and your mate's life a very real probability of sexually transmitted disease. The total devastation your sinful actions will bring to your children is immeasurable. Their growth, innocence, trust, and healthy outlook on life could be severely and permanently damaged. The heartache you will cause your parents, your family, and your peers is indescribable. The embarrassment of facing other Christians who once appreciated you, respected you, and trusted you will be overwhelming. If you're engaged in the Lord's work, you will suffer immediate loss of your job and the support of those with whom you worked. The dark shadow will accompany you everywhere and forever forgiveness won't erase it. Your fall will give others license to do the same. The inner peace you enjoyed will be gone. You will never be able to erase the fall from your or other's mind. This will remain indelibly etched on your life's record regardless of your later return to your senses. <clears throat> the name of Jesus Christ, whom you once honored, will be tarnished given the enemies of the faith further reason to sneer and jeer. Now again, that's not Bible. That's one man's experience as he worked for years. I thank God for the grace of God. I've seen marriages healed in incredible fashion. God is so wonderful. And if a mate is willing, but I, I want to say that this is such a deep hole in a heart that Jesus says, I give you permission to put away your spouse or divorce them if they've done this to you. He doesn't say you have to. He doesn't even recommend that you do it. But I think he knows that if there's a spouse that does this over and over again, he knows that he doesn't want that lovely child of his going through life wounded and damaged and never feeling loved.
Proverbs 6.32 says this, but the man who commits adultery is an utter fool for he destroys himself. He will be wounded and disgraced. His shame will never be erased. Why would I bring all this to your attention? Because the Bible says, I honestly believe much of the problem we have in America is because the prophets and the preachers won't share the truth anymore. The Bible says, how will they know unless someone tell them? The Bible says, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who will prepare for the battle? The Bible says, where truth is not revealed, the people will cast off restraint. So we're getting our philosophy from the TVs when it comes to sexuality, from the computers, from the world. And Colossians 2.8 says, be careful lest the vain philosophies of this world pull you away from the basic principles of Christ. Because we're not in the word on a regular basis. Because the preachers won't share the truth anymore. There's too much fear. The people are casting off restraint in the church in America. And the results are they're being devastated. When I became a preacher years ago, I really calculated I did not want to be a preacher. I ran from the call of God. But when I surrendered to the call... I said to God, I'll give it without fear or favor. You show me, Lord, and I'll walk in it. You speak it, Lord, and I'll say it. And the reason I waited so long to jump in is I was counting the cost. Am I willing to do this? And so I bring it to you today with this heart to understand why all this heaviness, this heart to understand that I'm fighting for you right now. I want to bless your life. God wants to protect you and cover you. Don't get into conversations with that lady that you're attracted to. Don't call her. Don't even talk to her if you felt an attraction there. Run. Don't fool yourself. And as the word says, don't be an utter fool. There's so much to be lost. 2 Timothy 2.22, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteousness, or righteous living rather, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Third point, if you've fallen, do the right thing now and don't make it worse. That's what I see when it comes to David. David had sinned with Bathsheba. Now he decided rather than repenting quickly. Now here's the thing about repentance. Repentance literally means to acknowledge in your mind that it's wrong. It's it's really twofold repentance. Decide in your mind that it's wrong and then to turn and go the other way. If you've not decided it's wrong and turned and gone the other way, you haven't really repented. It's not repentance to say, uh, uh, you know, the, the four hundredth day in a row after you've looked at pornography, Jesus, forgive me. That is not repentance. Repentance is to cite it's wrong and to move the other way. That's repentance. To, 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 to move away from the sin. And David messed up. He did not move away. He went further into covering his tracks and committed even more sin. Second Samuel eleven six. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him, 
how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master's servants and did not go down to his house. So this is the husband of Bathsheba. David wants him to go sleep with his wife so his sin can be covered. Otherwise, how can they um, make an excuse about the pregnancy? Verse 10, when David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab, my Lord's men, are camped in the open fields. And he's saying they're going through the discomfort of war and battle and I'm not gonna be comfortable while I left them. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Well, and here, he jumps off the ledge. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the, fiercest, where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. When you try to cover your tracks, when you don't repent, when you head down a road of lying, you're just gonna cause more and more pain. Time had passed. Opportunity was given for David to repent, but he covered his sin. Numbers 3.23 says, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Another place in the Bible says, that which is secret will become known. I remember a friend of mine who committed adultery spoke to me about it and he said, Stan, I knew, uh, when, when, when I, I knew a moment, I knew at that moment if I pressed in that I was going to pay a price. I thought about it, but I had no idea what that price would be. David had been covering his sin. We see in Psalm 32 and 51, you can read those sometime, about what was happening as he was living in sin and covering this sexual sin, this adultery with Bathsheba, that he became weak and sick, it says in those Psalms 32 and 51. He was physically ill. He lost his joy. He had no strength. He lost his witness. And finally, after a season that God left him, a chance to repent, God sends the prophet Nathan. Nathan shows up, and I won't read the scriptures to you, but I'll tell you the story. Nathan said, hey, I have a story I want to run by you, and I want you to help me with it. There was a rich man who had lots of sheep and many cattle. And then there was a poor man who had one little lamb. And the rich man, though he had much, stole away the one little lamb that the poor man had. Hey, King David, what should happen here? David, not understanding a correlation between what he'd done in that story, became angry and said, that man will pay back fourfold the poor man. And then David heard Nathan the prophet, and what a courageous man he must have been. He said to David, you are that man. You sinned with Bathsheba. God gave him time to confess and repent and what he did was he sent Uriah out to battle 
And now what was adultery had become murder because Uriah died. And when the prophet shows up, it had been a year since Uriah, since the sin of Bathsheba and Uriah had been killed, it had been a year that he'd have to repent on his own before the prophet showed up. No repentance. He refused to confess and he refused to repent. Well, because of Christ's finished work on the cross, God's able to save lost sinners and to forgive disobedient saints. And here's what all of us need to understand, whether we know the Lord or not, the sooner we repent of our sin, the better. Because the longer we let it go, the deeper we'll get into a hole and the more pain we will cause. So if you made a mistake, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that God will forgive everyone who comes to him with a humble heart, asking for his grace. Don't wait. Don't take this long season where more and more pain will happen because your sin will snowball David went from adultery to covering his tracks with murder. Premeditated. Psalm 32, verse five. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. This is a Psalm of David. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. Sooner, dealing with these things is better than later. Fourth thought that I see here, a fourth point. God will forgive us, but there will be consequences in our lives for sin. Uh, It's pretty simple then and now to see if you commit adultery and someone gets pregnant, that's a consequence that you have to live with for the rest of your life. It's true that God forgives and, the, and, and, and our sin is wiped away, that we're not guilty in his sight anymore, but it's also true that we, we, will, we will pay consequences in this life for our sins even though God has forgiven us. 2 Samuel 12, 13, then David said to Nathan, this is after Nathan says, you're that man, I've sinned against the Lord. So he finally comes to the place of Repentance. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Now notice there that immediately the grace of God covers David. Immediately God extends his grace to him because of that humble heart. He was just waiting that whole year for that moment when he said, I've sinned against the Lord. Isn't it interesting he didn't say, "I, I sinned against Bathsheba or I sinned against Uriah, but I sinned against the Lord because that's really what we're doing. It's against God. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But now, so the grace of God's there in the very next sentence. But because by doing this, you made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Now remember, this isn't just adultery now. Now it's murder. It's adultery and murder that he's paying the consequences for. David, when... Hearing about 
the sheep that had been stolen, said, that man will pay back fourfold for the sin he has committed. And it's really kind of interesting that when Uriah was killed, the fourfold, we, I think we can see it in the scripture because just as it was prophesied, the baby died when, when it was born to Bathsheba. But not only that, he had three other sons die. Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah were slain as young adult men. There was a prophecy spoken there that because you committed this adultery, your wives will be taken from you and subjected to public shame and they were violated. Now, I guess if we give David any credit here, um, when Nathan comes, David could have killed him too. <laughs> He's the king who had all power in his hands. But he said in his own heart and mind, enough, enough, I've done enough, it stops here. God's grace forgives, but God's governing justice must allow sinners to reap what they sow in this life as well. That's why we want to stay away from these things. But the grace of God is there. God can take away our sin just like he took away David's sin. 1 John 1, 9, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. I read a story about Pastor Lee Strobel He said we were doing a baptism service and we told people before they came up to the platform to be baptized that we wanted them to take a piece of paper, write down their sin on that piece of paper and on their way up, pin it to the wooden cross that they had on the stage because Jesus paid the price for your sin and he's taken away. And so they had people coming up and he said that a woman later wrote a letter to him that he wanted to share. And he shared this in a sermon. Here's what she said about that day and bringing her self to the stage to pin that on the cross and be baptized. She said, I remember my fear. In fact, it was the most fear I remember in my life. I wrote as tiny as I could on that piece of paper the word abortion. I was so scared someone would open the paper and read it and find out it was me. I wanted to get up and walk out of the auditorium during the service. The guilt and the fear were that strong. When my turn came, I walked toward the cross and I pinned the paper there and I was directed to the pastor to be baptized. He looked me straight in the eyes and I thought for sure that he was gonna read this terrible secret I kept from everybody for so long. But instead, I felt like God was telling me, I love you. It's okay. You've been forgiven. She said, I felt so much love for me, a terrible sinner. It's the first time I ever really felt forgiveness and unconditional love. And she said, it was unbelievably indescribable. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we can be forgiven of our sins. 
And though we'll still deal with some consequences in this life, we can have a pure heart starting now. We can have our names written in what the Bible calls the Lamb's Book of Life. It's the book that will say whether we're going to be in heaven or not. And the grace of God is offered to us. And here's what the grace of God does. And it's so powerfully wonderful for today. It forgives us of our sins and it enables us to do the right things from now on. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, the grace of God that leads to salvation teaches us to say no to all forms of ungodliness. How about that? Grace leads to salvation and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God is more than just forgiveness, it's enablement. And that's what we all have available to us today is forgiveness and enablement. Acts 3.19 says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Times of refreshing. How about that? That loving God, when we've sinned against his holiness, would say, hey, I want to help you. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to help you. He'll forgive us and our lives can still be good as we go forward. Even though we pay some consequences and even though we deal with things that, that are realities because of our past sins, we still can have a good life and a better life because we trust in God. Now here's how the grace of God shines. God chose Bathsheba to be the mother of the next king, Solomon. How about that? See, a God that didn't love would say, sorry, your mistake was too big. People who are self-righteous and legalistic will say, sorry, no more place of honor for you, but that's not what God says. When God sees a humble heart, he offers his grace. When we take it, we get his enablement. And when we live for him, the beauty, the beauty of a restored relationship returns. And it's just as if we haven't sinned. So he says to Bathsheba, and it was her sin too. He says to her, okay, you're on the right track now. You're gonna give birth to a king. 